American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. We are currently on hiatus, having completed our second full season five weeks ago. We will return for season three this fall. But this past week at the Center for Mark Twain Studies, we have been marking a special anniversary. On August 3rd, 1880, the black community of Elmira organized a day-long celebration of emancipation. Not just the emancipation of enslaved people in the United States, but around the world. Very few of the many thousand people, both black and white, who attended the Emancipation Day ceremonies in Elmira could have remembered the emancipation of the West Indies 46 years earlier. But the keynote speaker, Frederick Douglass, could. And his host for the day, John W. Jones, could as well. Both were born in 1817, and both emancipated themselves in their 20s, after which they became dedicated activists in the cause of anti-slavery. Jones became one of the most notorious conductors on the Underground Railroad, and Douglas became, as one of the Elmira newspapers put it, the most prominent and honored colored man in the world. Earlier this week, we published a reconstruction of Douglas's speech that day, The Lessons of Emancipation to a New Generation. It captures the mission of the Emancipation Day as a whole, reminding all those in attendance of what remained at stake as the nation moved haltingly away from the project of Reconstruction, leaving many of the supposedly emancipated people in conditions barely better than those they had been in before the Civil War began. Over the course of Emancipation Week, we have published several supplementary essays and lectures. You can read Douglas's speech and find links to all of these at marktwainstudies.com backslash lessons of emancipation. In this episode, we punctuate Emancipation Week with a conversation including two scholars who have lived in the Southern Tier and been inspired to research its unique history. Jill Spivey Cadell is a lecturer in 19th century American literature at the University of Kent and a tutor at the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. Her scholarship on how memory and memorial in the U.S. can be determined by geography appears in numerous academic and mainstream publications. But most relevant to our conversation, she has become one of the leading experts on John W. Jones, having explored his life and the civic myths associated with him in several venues, including an episode of America in the 19th Century, a recent Park Church lecture, and an essay for marktwainstudies.org. Dr. Cadell first became interested in Jones when she was a graduate student at Cornell University, working alongside our other guest. Shirley Samuels is a professor of literatures in English and director of the American Studies program at Cornell. Her many books include, most recently, Race and Vision in the 19th Century United States, and two important studies of the intersection of politics and aesthetics in the women's movements of the 19th century, movements concentrated in upstate New York. She is currently researching Civil War memory in the region, and last year delivered a Trouble Begins lecture on that topic. Both Dr. Samuels and Dr. Cadell have been Quarry Farm Fellows. For more about their work and the rest of our Emancipation Week programming, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash invisible home.
I think Jill probably had read the sort of split version of this speech that came out in the papers. Yeah. Reading this, the whole thing together yeah. now, what were your sort of initial reactions to it? What sticks out about what Douglas had to say here in 1880? My first initial moment of, of excitement was that, that sort of opening salvo, um, Mr. President and Friends, right? Because once we realized that it was in fact John W. Jones that Douglas was referring to as president, um, suddenly the speech takes on a whole different um, tone for me at least who, you know, I've, I've been interested in, in Jones's work in Elmira for a long time. Um, so to think about Douglas addressing someone who had a very similar background to him, who had really focused his efforts post-enslavement in sort of helping his local Black community and, and sort of being a fomenter of agitation within Elmira, um, but also being this caretaker of memory, of, of Civil War memory and, and Confederate memory. Um, I just, just thinking about Jones and Douglas in conversation was thrilling for me. Um, but in terms of where Douglas goes from there in the speech, you know, I, I, it was intriguing to me that it seems kind of bifurcated, right? And the first half is all about uh, West Indies emancipation, as he says. And then the second half is a much more sort of contemporary look at the political climate in 1880. And obviously, Douglas is sort of... Um, giving his endorsement of the Garfield campaign. But the way that he's able to kind of yoke that very historical argument about West Indies emancipation, which you know he sort of anticipates people saying, well, this is ancient history, this is British history, you know, why should I care? And Douglas, of course, makes this very nimble argument about how you know, freedom anywhere, it, it matters for people everywhere. He makes this sort of trans-historical, transatlantic argument about West Indies emancipation, and then sort of brings it into that that really um, what sounds like it must have been a really um, sort of complicated and uh, heated political moment in 1880 with the presidential campaign. Um, so I think seeing the speech all together really gives you that sense of both Douglas's ability to look back and, and make these broad historical arguments and then really ground his audience in you know, why the present matters. Trying to understand the structure of the speech once you see it all together. Mm -hmm. In the previous version of the speech we've had, the endorsement of Garfield was one text. Right. And the sort of extract on West India emancipation was another text. So a text that was really dra pretty dramatically revised it, yeah. uh, from, from the original speech. And so recognizing that those two things were, were one when they have clearly in some ways different purposes, different aims, different rhetorical effects is, I think, really powerful. One answer to the why does Douglas do all these things in the same speech is clearly that he's a surrogate for Garfield and sees himself as such at this point. And he's going to go on to do a series of campaign speeches throughout New York and Indiana, which were swing states in this mm -hmm. election. But it's also, I think, important for us as scholars to recognize that he he has some sort of stakes in wanting to do the comparison between West India emancipation and American emancipation, and to have that be the prequel to his endorsement to Garfield for this specific audience, an audience that he, I, I assume, anticipated was going to be predominantly African-American. Yeah. 
so the central way of answering a question is that I have been living in Ithaca, New York now for more than 30 years and living in Ithaca, New York, where, you know, you're close by in Elmira, Jill did for a short time live in, in Ithaca and is at present in Elmira. So there's a sense in which there's a saturation in 19th century history by a kind of triangulation, for example, of Seneca Falls, 30 miles up the lake, Auburn, 30 miles up in the other direction, Seneca Falls, of course, the 1848 convention where Frederick Douglass was present and where he was a signatory. He is visibly and also in, in textual ways part of it because he went back to Rochester with a copy of the Declaration of Sentiments and printed it in his newspaper, The North Star. And supposedly that's what happened to the original copy is that Frederick Douglass took it to Rochester. <laughs> and in Auburn, of that's course, great. you have not only William Seward, the Secretary of State, but also Harriet Tubman, who, who lived out the last part of her life there and is now a national historical site. So in terms of teaching, in terms of scholarship, you're situated in a way that, for me, the, the point of the triangle is now in a way Elmira, because of the prisoner of war camp, because of Mark Twain, because of this long 19th century history of a relationship among abolition and political activism. And John W. Jones, as you know, Jillian and others have been really definitely demonstrating, is a key part of that in ways that I think we're only beginning to understand. And it's lovely that Frederick Douglass is in effect addressing him as part of this audience as he gives this very pointed speech. I love this speech. I have been working with a small group of scholars that includes Derek Spires, um, Ezra Towell in Rochester, Dory Beam in uh, Syracuse, and Patty Roylands to work on concepts of democracy in 19th century New York. We have a humanities corridor grant to develop these ideas further to, to, to teach ourselves how many ways in which the geography of this region that in the early part of the 19th century was known as the burned over district because of religious revivalism, because of the enthusiasm that obsessed oratory and that oratorical tradition that conveys in Sojourner Truth, for example, who also met Frederick Douglass, who's also overlapping with Susan B. Anthony, who's also speaking for women's rights with, for example, the Chautauqua Institute, just to the west of us, not very far, which is this kind of the sense in which the circuit writing of the Methodists, the religious enthusiasm that carries over to speaking for you know, abolition, women's rights, and then of course, spiritualism and temperance, we, we kind of forget, and I think that's what's wonderful about this speech, that that enthusiasm and that vigor, you know, which is so extraordinary, I'm looking toward the end of the speech, the blood of patriots, the tears of woe, smitten widows and orphans cry from the ground, but not for vengeance. They only implore us to swear and to faithfully perform our oath that with the help of God, no representative, and I'm not even going to name the party because the parties have switched, under what guise soever he may come shall ever sit again in the presidential chair and dictate the policy and shape the destiny of this great nation. I'm sorry to say there's a lot of resonance for me in the current moment in this speech. But that, that sense in which the enthusiasm of the circuit writing speeches 
that we that we think oh the civil war ended and then the people don't have to do that anymore and this speech so so works against that there are so many moments in the speech as i was reconstructing it and transcribing it where i thought this is, is so resonant douglas lays out at one point a number of different previous politicians most of them presidents or presidential candidates who have tried to sort of take over a party and use it for, for their own devices and make themselves indistinguishable from the party and he says this never works right this is this is bound to always fail it's happened many times before it will happen many times again but it will never work he's more optimistic maybe than I am. But that idea of a individual leader becoming indistinguishable from the party itself and the American system resisting that possibility, I think is incredibly resonant in our own time. And it gives us a sense of the way that even when Douglas descends into the specifics of the 1880 election, he never loses sight of a broader argument that he's making in a kind of historical arc or ideological claim that he wants his audience to, to leave with. Even though, I mean, as you, as you know, I make the argument that he sort of discards part of the manuscript after the speech because he sees it as, you know, the latter part as a kind of election material that he's not going to need, whereas he keeps the earlier part, and that's the part he publishes in Life and Times the following year. So, like, he he clearly thinks one part of the speech is maybe more universalizing, more important, has a longer legacy than the other, but I think they actually kind of tie together in really interesting ways. As a 19th century Americanist, one of the best parts of the speech, in my mind, is that Douglas starts sort of forecasting the onset of Jim Crow, right? He describes the emergence of a kind of sharecropping system in the South. He's, he gives a great deal of invective towards the old master class and the way in which the Democratic Party has embraced and uh, been complicit in the desire to recreate slavery. And he says that in sort of no uncertain terms, right? That the situation in the South is not that much better than it was 20 years ago. And I think that's really hard. It's hard for us to hear. I think it was probably incredibly hard for the audience to hear. I think for the white members of the audience, maybe most of all. And so I wanted to sort of bring that part to, to the surface, as you've both done work on the Civil War and the legacy of the Civil War and the sort of memory, how do you interpret Douglas's desire to sort of tell an audience the Civil War is not over, the reconciliation is not happening, and in some in some ways the situation for African Americans, he, he says, you know, for the colored people of the South, is as bad or nearly as bad as it was 20 years ago. I was so struck by Doug Douglas's sort of um, analogy about how, you know, after the Civil War, um, there was such an, an effort to save sort of the, the bones of the Republic, right? To sort of preserve its outlines that there was not a solid foundation put underneath it for liberty. And that to me was such a striking way of, of, of putting a finger on exactly this problem that you're naming, Matt, that, that there was such an effort to just bring, to hold the union together no, no matter what, that all the efforts to, to reconstruct the South had been, had been failures. Um, 
And yeah, I sort of see this as part of a trajectory of, of Douglas after the Civil War, um, finding these ways that he can can make exactly this point about the sort of continuities um, that extend from sort of the antebellum into the postbellum. Um, and I think we see that in another speech he makes about four years earlier in his um, oration at the dedication of the Freedmen's Memorial in Washington, DC, which is the speech that's published directly before this one in Life and Times, which I noticed, mm -hmm. which I, you know, was really exciting to me because I feel like they're both, they're, they're doing very different things, but I think they're both of an accord in that they're, they're finding ways to resurrect the past and what might've seemed like the distant past at this point, right? You know, Douglas says this was 20 years ago that um, the Civil War began, um, and yet he draws these resonances. So in, in the case of the oration at the, the dedication of the Freedmen's Memorial in DC, does this very careful evisceration of the motivations and character of Abraham Lincoln, which has always struck me as an incredibly audacious point to make um, at that moment in time, unveiling a statue of Abraham Lincoln in front of Ulysses S. Grant, et cetera, et cetera. But that moment was such an example of a moment of Black civic participation being usurped by you know, white do-gooders and, and people who sort of came in and thought they knew better, perhaps. And, and to me, Douglas, Douglas's critique of Lincoln there is, is all about the white usurper coming in and then sort of stealing the, the agency of, of postbellum Black Americans. So I, I see something similar happening in the Elmira speech. Where at, at the end there, in that sort of overtly political contemporary part, he's saying, like, vote, get out there, because things haven't changed. And it's really you, the new generation, who have the, 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 the citizenship and the civic power to get out there and make change. No, I mean, I think it's great that you're connecting it to that speech at the Freedmen's Memorial, which, of course, is controversial in all kinds of ways as a statue, which is kind of connecting for me. The two things I want to do, one is very easy, which is just to read a couple more things toward the end of the speech, knowing that people might well have access to it, but wanting to emphasize, uh, again, contemporary relevance when he says, I know that its leaders will howl and gnash their teeth if we go into their closet and drag out the ghastly skeletons, but we must do it nevertheless. Uh, what a party has done when it has the power that party is likely to do when it again gets power. Again, it's not simply contemporary relevance, but it's just like, hello, we are always in a moment of precarity. And it also is, of course, the relevance for me is the contemporary dis dis disputes, let's just call it that, although it's outrageous, about critical race studies, which is the second point I wanna get into in a minute. He goes on to say, I admit that the American people have a tolerably good memory, but they are most likely, more likely to forget too soon then remember too long the actions of parties during the late war. And he goes on a few paragraphs later to talk about the New York City draft riots, which again, given January 6th, has this kind of, you know, so he says, you know, that this party was fomenting riot and bloodshed against the draft here in the North, creating a reign of terror in New York and doing all it could to embarrass the government and dishearten its friends. Had the doors of all the prisons in the land been opened and all the thieves, thugs, and murderers turned loose to prey upon the country, the evil would have been far less. And, you know, this is, of course, an outrageous claim 
again, like attacking Abraham Lincoln as being the white man's president, which is what he does in that Fremont Memorial speech, you know, and it's sensational and not surprised in a way that he didn't want to repeat it. You know, this is like the most flagrant rabble rousing element of the speech. But this is the, the point, too, is that given Douglas's sympathy with the issue of women's suffrage, which, of course, was the great post-war split about, you know, some of the women whose side he had been on in 1848 turned out to make racist comments about what would happen with the right to vote after the war, there is no sense at all that he's speaking to women. I'm just going to throw that out. This is my second point. Every comment that he makes about citizens and voters is about men. Every element of the speech is addressed to men. And so what it what it also brings out for me is that great post-war controversy. I also noted, so far as I could tell, every member of the organized committee, first of all, every member of the organizing committee is African-American, but I believe they are also all men, right? And so this is, on the one hand, as I wanted to ask Jillian about, like this is clearly an attempt to create a kind of autonomous infrastructure for uh, you know, for political mobilization in the African-American community, not just of Elmira, but of the broader region. On the other hand, it does seem to exclude women in that, right? And I I think there's, there's a, another passage I wanted to draw attention to that I think sort of transitions here. Part of our destiny is in our own hands. Every dollar you lay up represents one day independence, one day of rest and security in the future. If the time shall ever come when we shall possess a among the colored people of the United States, a class of men noted for enterprise, industry, economy, and success, we shall no longer have any trouble in the matter of civil rights and political rights. Mm -hmm. right? That line hits me in a way that like it's so bittersweet. It's a wonderful thought, it's a wonderful, it, it, but it doesn't feel like it's right yeah. <laughs> with the, the knowledge we now have. The battle against popular pre prejudice will have been fought and won and in common with all other races and colors, we shall have an equal chance in the race of life. And that, that part of the speech is so powerful to me because it sort of pulls in two directions. On the one hand, he seems to be capturing something about the day itself, right? This day of celebration created for and by African-Americans in this specific region, a sort of community building that also has a political purpose. And they are taking the reins for themselves, right? And he wants to preach sort of self-reliance, self-determination. Okay? On the other hand, it does sort of fall into the sort of Booker T. Washington, cast down the buckets where you are. Don't worry about the systemic forces weighted against you. Just strive, strive, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, sacrifice for the next generation. And I think now that ideology, incredibly powerful in the 19th century, not just for African-Americans, but for the, you know, the entire American populace, it rings very hollow now. Particularly, I wanted to ask Jillian, like, 
how do you grapple with the figure of John W. Jones, who's sort of a personification of this, right? He is both going to sort of lead the, 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 the drive as president of this organizing committee to create this autonomous celebration. And at the same time, he's a sort of figure of the bootstrapping individual mm-hmm. that, you know, that may come at the sacrifice of a more clear eyed understanding of systemic forces of discrimination and and oppression? Yeah, well, that's that's a great question. Um, I don't know that I have a great answer for it right now, but I think what you're getting at, Matt, is this essential tension that I think you you can you're you're bringing out in the speech itself, but also that we can sort of find within the histories that are told of of John W. Jones and and of course within I think the works of, of Twain, but but this sort of tension between on the one hand, I think it's a tension in scale, right? It's sort of like, how do we how do we focus our efforts at this particular moment? Do we um, sort of micro-organize? Do we focus on the hyper-local? Um, you know, Douglas begins with this um, invocation of the home, right? That he feels at home in Western New York. He feels at home in the burned over district and in exactly the way that Shirley's describing in this kind of radical geography. And to me, that's a very localized version of home, right? It's it's this specific place within, I think he says, forty miles of Rochester, or whatever the. I think it's a hundred miles. But Sorry, yeah, it's, yeah, he gives a specific <laughs> right. mi- set of miles. So if yeah. you're outside of that, you know, Douglas is Douglas is no longer feeling quite as comfortable. But but we understand what he means, right? Because exactly in the way Shirley says, there is this kind of triangulation you can do between all these really important places of radicalism in the 19th century, religious, political, and otherwise. So we have these these sort of extreme localities. And I think on the one hand, Jones kind of represents to me how you affect change within the local, right? Because, and in some ways, I think that's why his reputation suffers today in relation to someone like Douglas, right? And everyone's reputation would suffer uh, in comparison with Douglas's. But you know, Jones is not really known widely outside of Elmira itself. And I think it's partly because he was so hyper-focused on change within his community. And so I so I think you see this within Douglas's speech. You know, he keeps coming back to the idea of home and he starts with the idea of home. But then he says at one point, uh, something like the universality of human liberty excludes all idea of home and abroad, right? He kind of says we have Mm -hmm. to like do away with the local if we want to think in this kind of grand systemic national transnational way. And I don't, I don't know if he ever resolves that tension within the speech, right? Because I think, Mm -hmm. yeah, he does have these moments of sort of grand gestures and this sort of Booker T. Washington-esque um, idea of uplift. But I think obviously he also understands that, you know, the, the work of the committee at Elmira, for example, has brought into being this moment of emanci- this celebration that was that was kind of unheralded and 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 incredibly impactful. Like you said, it mirrors the the premise of the speech in the first place, right? That right. that we can celebrate West in- Indies emancipation. In fact, we must celebrate West Indies emancipation, even though it's not local even though it's not national because 
this precedent made possible our own emancipation. Right? I think that, it, but then he could, it, again, it's that tension where by the end he's saying, go out and vote in your district. Yeah, exactly. Right? Exactly. I'll f- I want to follow up on that question of this audience. As, as you both have this sort of long history with researching this place and the people, a lot of people can read this speech and place it within that universal context or place it within the context of American history. But how, how does your understanding of that sort of triangulated space between Rochester and Elmira and Seneca Falls help you understand who would have been in the audience for this? How this celebration, not just the speech itself, but the event, would have sort of ripple effects within this, this, as I think you, know, you both have pointed out, this pretty unique and unusual place in particularly late 19th century America. There's a real, in the second half of the 19th century, there's something happening here. I've, I've called it the gospel of revolt in my work. Like there's something happening here that's kind of unusual and kind of idiosyncratic for even the Northeast. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, to not answer that question because I don't know if I can answer that question. My mind was still back on the question that Joe was answering. So I, I'm going to finagle a non-answer here. That's fine. Yeah. So my finagling includes, as it were, invisible homes, which is to say, um, in the case of Frederick Douglass, his home in Rochester was burned down. And therefore, he became associated with the home that he had in DC that's still there as a museum that you can visit and it's so lovely and it has his slippers in front of a chair with the little weights that he apparently lifted in the morning when he woke up. And you know, that that kind of domestication of a space is mirrored in a way by Quarry Farm, which is to say you have in Hartford, Connecticut, the elegant twain mansion that's right next to the Harry Beecher Stowe house. And that's great. But the Quarry Farm place where Jill is sitting right at this moment, I can I recognize where she is is like the invisible home of Mark Twain. And, and Mark Twain is like, in a, this is to get back to a different element of what we're talking about. He's like an invisible presence in some of this because Mark Twain could potentially have been there at that moment of this speech. No record that he was. I like, Matt, I did look at your paper about thinking about how Twain and Douglas were competing orators in their own oratorical circuit, appearing perhaps back to back on the same stage in, in succeeding nights meeting at some point, but not ever engaging in the sense that this speech engages the current political moment. Mm-hmm. We do not associate Twain with political speeches except for the later 19th, early 20th century. We do not associate him with political speeches, but instead with humor. Mm-hmm. And so what I was thinking about as I read this speech and thinking about your paper, Matt, about Twain and Douglas going back to back, is what is the difference between an audience that comes to laugh about Twain and regional humor and this Old Southwest invocation, which includes dialect. Let's go back to that in a minute, because I love nothing as much as a digression. So here we are, a digression. So the digression is here, you know, Twain invoking forms of dialect that have been associated by people like Shelley Fisher Fishkin with adapting the language of the African-American community that he grew up in. And Douglas, of course, high formal diction, all of the practice of 
you know, basically classical rhetoric and oppositions. So that that sense of switching places and of places that vanish mm -hmm. in speech, this is the final moment of the digression, reminds me of Sojourner Truth, which is the famous speech associated with Sojourner Truth has been demonstrably distorted with the assumption that it had to have been delivered in dialect where it's absolutely the case that she only spoke Dutch until she was nine. It's most likely that she had some kind of Dutch accent, you know, New York slash Dutch mm -hmm. accent, nothing like the dialect that she's associated with. So part of this, there is a point eventually, is to think about basically oral traditions and the way that in a sense, oral traditions form a kind of home in their audience, form a moment that is always going to vanish because we can't recreate it. We can read these words. John W. Jones does not leave written speeches. So we have Douglas leaving his written words, but we can't inhabit the home of the oral tradition that these events are part of. To pick up the thread that you offered there, because I think that distinction between Twain resisting portraying himself as a political speaker, whereas Douglas is embracing it, right? Saying in no uncertain terms, I am, you know, I am on the stump, right? I am stumping for Garfield, for the Republican Party. I may be upset with some things that have happened recently in terms of the failures of Reconstruction and my own party abandoning the interests of people in the South, but I am still out there on the campaign trail doing my part to turn out the vote, particularly in these key swing states. And he's, he's, he has no shame about that. Whereas Twain, and it was, here's the sort of interesting thing, in 1879, there are newspaper reports that the Republican Party has officially procured the services of both Douglas and Twain to help in the 1880 campaign. Douglas, clearly there is some truth to that. Whatever procure, whether procure meant pay or procure just meant, you know, persuade him to help, like he he's he had, in no uncertain terms is representing the, the Republican Party. Twain denies over and over again, I'm not a campaign speaker, I'm not a political speaker, and yet he shows up in several key moments, including in Elmira, the very same month that they say he is has been his services have been procured. He shows up for a sort of the start of the Republican campaign in Elmira to introduce uh, Joseph Hawley. What's interesting about that is Twain doesn't Twain makes a bunch of jokes in his introduction about Hawley, about political speakers in general. That's what's reprinted verbatim in the paper. Holly's speech is paraphrased and is treated as a kind of standard stump speech. But the fact that Twain was there meant that thousands of people showed up. It meant that the, the thing got front page headlines the next day. And so he sort of is using his celebrity for a political cause more for Garfield than perhaps he does for any future specific candidate, right? He has more specific political positions maybe later in his life, but this is maybe the time he most helps a specific candidate, but he's denying that that's what he's doing the whole time. <laughs> Very different, like for Douglas, they're both sort of out there helping the Republican cause, but one of them is pretending that's not what he's doing. What, what, what do you do with a speech like this as a researcher, as a teacher, like, 
when we sort of return to a, a moment that I, I think sort of comes to life when we have the documentation and yet has disappeared from the historical record for a prolonged period of time, how, how do you think about using this in the classroom? Obviously, the Center for Mark Twain Studies has real investment in providing materials and support for teachers. What are some things that you can imagine doing with this in either a, a secondary or a higher ed classroom? All the wonderful documentation you've you've dug up, Matt, from all the local newspapers, um, just adds so much sort of color and interest and and sort of vibrancy to this speech that otherwise, you know, it's it's relatively contextless when, especially when it's presented in Life and Times. You know, we get a little paragraph explaining that it was given on August 1st in Elmira, which I take it is, is not even the correct date. It is no, the, it's yeah. the emancipation anniversary, right? But it's not the actual date that Douglas gave the speech. And you know, you get just a little bit of information about sort of what Douglas was doing there, and but it's it's very brief. Um, and then you get this kind of explication of West Indian emancipation that we've already talked about that, that sort of seems to come a little bit out of nowhere. You know, it seems to me Douglas was, was sort of commission to speak on West Indian emancipation. From what I can tell, obviously, they chose to celebrate this anniversary. They're also looking at the Emancipation Proclamation anniversary. But but I think as, as the, a point that you make in your essay, Matt, is that that's much more tangential than that West Indian emancipation anniversary that's being, that's being celebrated. So I think all of those supplementary documents, those newspaper reports, really add so much to our to our understanding of the day, not just as a speech, each individual aspect sort of serving a different monumental purpose. Um, so if you think about the parade, which you know went across Elmira, um, if you think about um, and, and you make the point that it you know it begins at an African American church and it's sort of it's it's pointedly going past these these sort of locations that are associated with Black Elmira. If you compare that with, you know, the actual um, celebrations where they recite the Emancipation Proclamation, where there's all this music and sort of pageantry. Um, if you think about the ball later that day and the dinner, the sumptuous dinner that they hold, you know, it's not just a speech, which would be exciting enough, but it's, it's this entire... Um, Sort of declaration, outward declaration of planning, of expertise, of joy, of, of memory. I would love to teach the speech within all of those contextual um, documents. And I think teaching it with, with Twain as well is a really exciting thing to think about, given these connections that you've drawn out between Doug Douglas and Twain. Um, you know, I'm very partial to a true story repeated word for word as I heard it, which is the mm -hmm. famous story that's set at Quarry Farm in Elmira. And I think I would be tempted, you know, I've taught the story before, but I think now in thinking about, about Twain and Douglas together, um, you know, I think it's important to point out that, that you can see downtown Elmira from, from Quarry Farm, right? You can see the banks of the Shemung River where the POW camp was located. And, and you really get the sense that Twain is looking at the city every morning when he wakes up at this farm, unless the clouds are obscuring it, right? right. And so there's something very important about that geographical space of Elmira within the, the text that Twain is writing about Elmira and also sort of coming up with in Elmira. Of course, everyone thinks about mm -hmm. Huck Finn 
I, I don't have much to say about The Prince and the Pauper, which I know he was working on in 1880, but it, it seems intriguing to right. me to think about what that text might have to say in terms of, you know, Twain being at Douglas's speech and all of this. It's certainly British and American ideals being conflated yeah. again, right? Yeah, yeah. totally. I mean, I, yeah, just thinking about um, the notebooks that you discuss in your essay and how, you know, Twain's um, discussions of and, and really like calling out the South um, he's thinking about this and on either side, he's also thinking about English history and, you know, in order to write Prince and the Pauper. Yeah, that's a totally intriguing bit of contextual relation. Well, to begin with, Matt, I really like your essay. I mean, I, I love how it weaves together some of these details and makes the case for something that, again, you know, don't think about. For, we don't for know. It. It's just it's just great. Yeah. But thinking about Frederick Douglass as a friend of Jervis Langdon, you know, is, is part of what I took away from it as something that, again, when I talk about invisible homes, that that sense that Douglas would be at home in Elmira is, which comes out in the anecdotes that you tell, which comes out also in this, the bit that you reprint from the speech, which says, most of the men with whom I lived and labored five and 30 years ago have passed away. There are but few left to tell the story of the early days of anti-slavery. Yeah. Scarcely any of the colored men who advocated the cause during that time are now on the stage of active life, and I begin to feel lonely. I mean, there's something very poignant, but also yeah. poignant and invisible that Twain, who, and again, throwing in two points, one, that the Prince and the Pauper, if you pair it with Puddinghead Wilson, with, you know, both of which involve basically switched children and switched children, then you go retroactively reading The Prince and the Pauper and think, is this also about the trace as Roxy's switching babies shows mm -hmm. a trace of the confusion about the one drop rule, mm -hmm. a trace that, you know, The Prince and the Pauper might also be commenting on. And I think I'm not going to go much further in that direction, but that, that sense of Douglas finding in Twain, who is after all so much younger than he is, mm -hmm. somebody who could represent something partly through his connection with the Langdon family because of his marriage, and partly, you know, as, as somebody who is thinking about the history of slavery, even as absolutely Huckleberry Finn remains an extremely controversial commentary on the history of slavery. So I think my long-winded way of responding to your question, Matt, is that reading all this makes me think about how to teach it without seeming defensive about Huckleberry Finn. Because mm -hmm. I think it's absolutely the case that Huckleberry Finn is still controversial, still has, you know, the, the terrible aspect of trying to set a free man free, mm -hmm. which is yeah. painful and kind of horrible about Huckleberry Finn. And nonetheless, if you read it in terms of some of what Douglas is saying, that resonance of writing about 1835, 50 years later, yeah. is also to say that this story about slavery is not over. Yeah. We have not finished setting a free man free. I think that's a that's an incredibly powerful point, right? That this Doug, Douglas is, is the the much maligned and critiqued last section of Huckleberry Finn is in some ways a, a kind of literary encapsulation of the, the the middle part of Douglas's speech, where he's saying 
you know, we're no better off. Like, and, and a lot of people attribute that to Twain's trip, you know, returning to the South a year later, a year after the speech, Twain goes back to the South, sees the conditions of post-reconstruction, and perhaps uh, the sort of Holbrook thesis is he he recognizes that nothing has really changed since, and so and so going back to tell the story of Huck Finn and Jim on the river is you know is still highly relevant, and and that you know. I, I think Douglas is kind of making that case as well. I don't, you know, it's dangerous to presume that that's why Twain went back. <laughs> but, yeah. but to speak to your earlier, the passage you mentioned earlier, Shirley, that that's at the beginning of the speech where he says, and I, I agree, this is incredibly powerful. Like uh, almost everybody who participated in sort of militant radical abolitionists, members of the Underground Railroad, et cetera, they're almost all dead. And I feel lonely. And and you do have to wonder, he spent the day with John W. Jones, right? And they go together to the Park Church and they both talk about seeing the portrait of Jervis Langdon and having sort of memories and feelings resurface. We, we don't have the first page of Douglas's manuscript. Those passages, the welcome home, the people I've lost, you know, are, are in some ways inspired by spending some time, a rare occasion where he gets to spend time with somebody who was there, right? right? And, and who is almost as old as he is, who is as invested as he was. Um, I think that, yeah, the, it's it's hard not to see that as as resonant in some way. Totally. And, and Shirley's invocation and, and your discussion, Matt, reminds me that when people were going to tell the story of the Underground Railroad at the end of the 19th century and, and wanted to recover those histories, the historian uh, Wilbur Siebert right, wrote to Susan Crane as the daughter mm-hmm. of Jervis Langdon, and she made exactly that point, right? There's almost no one left. But the only person who was left was John W. Jones. And, and from that, we get those really wonderful letters that you've put online through the Twain Center, uh, where you know Susan Crane puts out her own reminiscences. She mentions that that Twain has has spoken with Jones about possibly writing down his life story, but then um, decided that it was really something he could only tell in his own words, which is such an evocative thing for Twain, of all people, to decide. Mm-hmm. And then we do get those moments where Jones does, you know, he's, he's battling ill health. He's, he's very, very elderly at this point, but he is able to, you know, send some messages to Seabird about his memories of, you know, the railroads and Langdon's activities and things like that. Um, but yeah, he is, lit- I mean, by this point, Douglas is dead too, right? So he is literally, in many ways, sort of the last, the, the last one left. Yeah. Um, and I think that overwhelming sense of loneliness that Douglas must have felt in 1880, um, you can only imagine how much more that would have been felt for Jones as well, sort of into the 1890s. But Twain is sort of, you know, in certain ways, preserving these memories, or at least calling into question the idea that we've moved on from this moment of, before the war. So I guess there's a little bit of hope in that as well. Um, and it is a hopeful speech. I think that's what I always come away with from Douglas is that despite the loneliness, he does have this tremendously, you know, wonderful sense of futurity and this new generation, mm-hmm. if they remember, if they know how to use history correctly. 
understand and in, in a sense weaponize the shared history, they can affect change. He's a utopian thinker, right? Douglas is in a way that that Twain quite clearly is not, um, and I think that's that's a real potent way of thinking about their contrast. Yeah. That was Jill Spivey Cadell and Shirley Samuels. This has been a special Emancipation Week episode of the American Vandal Podcast from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I encourage you to explore all the materials associated with Emancipation Week at marktwainstudies.com backslash lessons of emancipation. To learn more about today's episode, visit marktwainstudies.com backslash invisible home. I'm Matt Siebold. Thanks for listening.